Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And again, that's Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you can look under the seat in front of you. Uh, there should be a Bible, and you can turn to page 774 and follow along. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired after the, about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here, uh, worship with you, and now share the word of God with you. Before we begin, let's start with a prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week was entering the kingdom. This week is entering the kingdom too. And so last week we went, around, uh, we went over about the rich man who wanted to be vindicated by Jesus. But when Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and give to the poor and follow him, he turned sorrowful and went away. This prompts Jesus to mention that the rich person entering the kingdom of heaven is like a camel going through the eye of a sewing needle. To which the disciples respond, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, the response isn't, how can the rich ever enter the kingdom then? But who can enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, today there is a growing movement uh, where there is a growing disdain for the wealthy. <clears throat> this kind of disdain isn't really new, but today's outrage is driven by the feeling like this is a new thing to be outraged about. But whether you have a disdain for the rich or even the poor or believe that one economic class deserves heaven more than the other, Jesus is the one that gives the answer, who can enter the kingdom of heaven? The one in a more humble circumstance may need some help 
or more help than someone who is a better season in a better season economically but both need saving in the absolute infinite sense spiritually you know you could be more well off physically maybe you can fight and beat 17 people at one time versus the guy who got beat up by a middle school girl but both of you will still die in the end you might be the person asking, if that really fit and talented person can't get into heaven, who can get in? Or the celebrity with 100 million followers. I only have a fraction of that. And if she can't get in, then who can get in? You might be listening here now thinking, well, no, huge. Seriously, no one thinks like that. But if that's the case, why are you living like that's the way you'll get into heaven. If that really is the case, and that's what you really believe, then why are you living like that's the way you'll enter heaven? And you might be like, what? My response would be because you're pouring everything into that. You're pouring everything into that. No matter what kind of picture-perfect life you'll want to have lived to whatever degree you've attained it or attained that standard, you getting into heaven is like trying to fit a camel through the eye of a sewing needle. But with Jesus, the impossible becomes possible. So to be with Jesus is the key. To follow him is the key. No matter what it costs, no matter what it costs. Whatever you have now is temporal. It's ephemeral. It's fleeting. To hold on to something with such ferocity and determination, white knuckle gripping it. You know, white knuckle gripping is when you hold on to something so tight, you see the whites of your knuckles. And white knuckle gripping the things that are ephemeral, temporal, fleeting is to to do this with all your might and that's where all your focus and determination goes and you're missing the very thing or the very one that's in front of you and he is not temporal he is not ephemeral he is not fleeting but he is eternal he is divine and he is glorious when Jesus tells the young rich man to sell all his possessions and give to the poor and follow him, he was telling him to loose his grip, abandon what he had been white-knuckle gripping all this time so that he can hold on to the very thing he was claiming to seek. I know I've given other examples of things that we white-knuckle grip, but I don't want to lose the focus that Jesus gives on money. Money is what we white-knuckle grip. Money is the thing that we will not share with other people. When's the last time you told someone what you make, your salary? It's just, that's like socially unacceptable. It's money that breaks up marriages. It's money that breaks up families. It's money that breaks up friendships. It makes you insane. 
And this brings us back to Jesus telling his listeners, even in Matthew 6, you cannot serve both God and money. Money makes us do things we wouldn't do for a, we normally wouldn't do this for a very long time. Money makes us do these things. And when Peter asks, what do people get? Okay, we gave up everything we had. Okay, what do people in the kingdom get? Okay, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. What do we get? And Jesus gives them this incredible blessing, but finishes that statement with, Many who are first will be last and last first. And so this is the second part of that teaching, explaining that final statement. This is a parable that Jesus gives that will explain many who are first will be last and the last first. I'm just going to give a quick disclaimer. I've read some commentaries and people who believe that this is about Jews and Gentiles. I do not think so. I don't think there's any context to give me any awareness that this is about Jews and Gentiles. So I will not be talking about that. And so this second part, this parable that Jesus gives, explains what he exactly means. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And he starts with this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Anything when we see like the kingdom of heaven is like, we know it's a parable. Again, a parable is a literary method that Jesus uses to explain the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. It gives understanding to what was once hidden, but to whom? Who does it give understanding to? Just the select few who can decipher it? And the answer is not necessarily. Yes, in the sense that there, if there is something that you don't understand, Jesus reveals even further what must be revealed to his disciples. But we also know that even the lawyers and the teachers, a.k.a. chief priests and Pharisees, knew what Jesus was talking about when he would give parables a few chapters later, and they knew that they were talking about them. So they wanted to arrest and kill him. So the understanding comes, but what is the true purpose of a parable? The true purpose of the parable is for us to trust the parable giver. Does your understanding of the parable lead you to trust in God? And if the answer isn't yes, then perhaps you've missed the purpose of the parable. Parables are designed to encourage the disciples that have been chosen and called by Christ. And so we see that this also was intended to encourage the disciples. A master of a house, which is a landowner, went out early, excuse me, early in the morning to hire laborers. A normal workday was about 10 hours, not counting breaks. So the master of a house or the landowner would go out at dawn, probably around 6 a.m., and would hire workers for his vineyard. And in verse 2 it says, After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. This is a practice that the hearers would have been very familiar with. Uh, When I was a teenager, my dad's church bought a building, and it needed renovation. So my uncle took to the task, and I accompanied him as his assistant. And so the two of us couldn't finish the work, So we went out 
it was in Flushing. So we went out to Northern Boulevard. And if you don't know what Northern Boulevard, just and you live in Jersey, it's, it's Broad Avenue here. So we went out to Northern Boulevard and we looked for Mexican workers who wait every morning for people that might hire them for a day or a temporary project. There are specific places in Northern Boulevard in Queens that people wait for someone to pick them up. Maybe this is the case all throughout the states, but I see them even here in New Jersey when I drive to church in the morning. And I also want to note that while most are Mexican, there are also Salvadorans, Guatemalans, and Hondurans in that mix. They're a minority, but they're there. And when I work with them, they would tell me not to hire the other ethnic group because the other ethnic group was lazy. And then I would say, when they're complaining to me, uh, my uncle, he would get the same thing as this. He would have a, a set wage that's agreed upon, but at the end, he would treat everybody to dinner. But he spoke mostly Korean. And so when he spoke English, he was evangelizing to the Mexican workers. And then when they wanted to speak, they would talk to me. And then I would just ask them, and they would complain. And then being a teenager, I would ask them, how can you tell who's from where? Like, I'm not trying to be offensive, but how can you tell who's a Guatemalan, who's a Honduran, who's a Salvadoran, and who's Mexican? And this is the response they gave me. They just know. And I was like, we just know. And it's like, yeah, okay. You know, that's when they didn't get me. It's, like, it's because Asians can tell other Asians apart really well, right? No. Like, in fact, in Japan, the Korean missionaries there insisted I was Chinese. Even though I told them I was Korean, my last name is Kim. It's like, no, you have a Chinese face. It's like, what? I don't even know what that means. So they insisted I was Chinese. So even Asians can't get it right. But... Beside the point, uh, besides that point, this was a very familiar thing back in the day where you would go hire day workers and bring them to the field. And it was especially more so in Jesus' day because there was a lot of seasonal work. Some of you have seasonal jobs because that's exactly how the economy functions in certain sectors. And harvest work was seasonal. But verse 3 and on, some things are a little bit different than what you might be used to hearing. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So far in the first two verses, it's pretty normal. It's standard stuff. But the following verses, some interesting elements are introduced and presented. The third hour is 9 a.m. These are tardy people. They're latecomers. You, don't go, you go to work at 6 a.m. back in the day. You don't go three hours later and expect, like, I'm on time. But he picks them up. Not only that, not only that. He goes out again at the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, and there are still people standing there. And then the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., and finds people still. And you might be thinking in this point, at this point, what's going on? You know, why didn't he just hire all those people at once? Did he not know how much work needed to be done? And if you ask that question, good, because so did I. But you will get no answer. 
I mean, a parable is meant to relay a key understanding, and all the details inside that parable are meant to support this key understanding of the kingdom of heaven. So we're just going to move on for now, for now. And then we go into an even more astounding thing that the master of the house does. He goes out at the 11th hour. And if you've been keeping up with the math, it's 5 p.m. That's literally when the sun is about to go down. When the sun is down, the day is over. There's no more work that can be done. He asks the people outside at 5 p.m., why are you still here? And when they go, no one hired us, he picks them up too. From the third hour and on, what's the negotiated terms? He goes, whatever is right. And the people went, okay, sure. You know why? Because tardy people would get zero work. If you're not there at 6 a.m., you don't get paid. You know, if they don't pick you up at 6 a.m., you're done. Everyone that needed to work would have been picked up at 6 a.m. So the terms, whatever is right, is something that we would understand as gracious since they would have gotten nothing anyway. They wouldn't have gotten work. So who's to say that the master of the house wasn't short-sighted but just hired everyone in the marketplace. Perhaps, perhaps, if this confused you, perhaps he went out at 6 a.m., hired everyone in the marketplace. And then when he went out at 9 a.m., more people showed up, so he hired everyone at 9 a.m., and so on and so forth. Who's to say that? But those precise details aren't given, so I don't think we should make a judgment either way because it doesn't matter, okay? It doesn't matter. But here's the kicker in verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. It was customary to pay each worker at the end of the day, not every two weeks or monthly. If you got paid monthly, I feel you. It's horrible. I used to get paid monthly. And, but at that time, it was customary to get paid at the end of each day. He calls in the foreman or the manager and has them pay the workers from last, the people who hired last, all the way to the people who he hired early at 6 a.m. So those that were hired at 5 p.m. would get a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage, and in the New York City metropolitan area, the average median salary is 75K. A day's wage is derived from this median average would be about $300. So they came to work for less than an hour maybe, maybe an hour at most, and they get paid a full day's wage, 300 bucks or a denarius. Now the people who came earlier saw that they were getting paid a day's wage. And they would thought, think, surely I will get more. Bonus incoming, it's Christmas time, right? But they get paid the same $300, a denarius. 
And they grumbled at the master of the house. How can these guys who work for an hour get paid the same as us who worked in this scorching heat? Which is true, right? It's true. If you work 10 hours in the day with the sun beating down on you and the scorching winds from the desert, which sometimes gets so bad. And if you're in the Middle East, when the scorching wind from the desert comes and hits you, it gets so bad, you have to just run for cover. You can't stand outside and do work because it'll just burn, a little like melt your skin off. So you have to run for cover. And you're compared to a guy who came in at 5 p.m. right before close? Come on, come on. But here is the gentle rebuke again. Reminding you of the gentle rebuke last week that Jesus gave the disciples. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Friend, again, signifying that this isn't a harsh rebuke, I am doing you no wrong. There is no cheating. There is no defrauding going on here. This was the agreed-upon amount from the beginning. He has, he has agreed to pay them this wage, and this was agreed-upon wage. Now, if he wants to give more, that's his business. If he wants to be generous with his money, isn't that his right? Wasn't he just paying everyone he agreed to pay the amount he agreed to pay? If he has been just, if he has been just in paying what he needed to pay, can't he do with his money what he wants to? Especially if it's to be generous. And then Jesus adds this statement, Or do you begrudge my generosity? The NIV translates it as this, are you envious? The actual literal Greek is, do you have the evil eye? Do you have the evil eye? Ophthalmosu poneros is the eye that is evil, but eye is also denoted to use interchangeably with understanding, okay? So you can see the language that's used, this evil eye is also wicked understanding. So do you begrudge my generosity or are you envious are both right in their translation, but it's capturing the statement, do you see that what is generous? Do you see, like in your understanding, do you see generosity or his generousness as evil? And this may seem like a rhetorical question, but it's still a rebuke, albeit a mild one. Will you let your evil heart cover what is good? And Jesus just ends it with the same statement that he said at the end of the last chapter. So the last will be first and the first last. So this, everything that I've said to you now, this is the explanation of who then can be saved and what do we get. Understood? Easy. End of teaching, right? And this may be confusing to some of us, but there was a parable back in the day in Jesus' time before he said this, that people were also saying. This was a saying that the rabbis would teach other people, and this would have been a very popular story. 
there was a king who hired workmen for his vineyard. And one of them worked very skillfully. As the king was looking out at the workers he hired, he saw one person working very skillfully. And so about the second hour of work, he pulled that very skillful worker aside and he just talked with him the whole day. The king just talked with the skillful worker. And then when it came time for the laborers to be paid, this man received the same as all the other men. And this is when all the other people would grumble. He said, we toiled all day and this man just worked for one or two hours and yet the king gave him his full wage. And the king would answer, why are you grumbling? This man in his one or two hours of work did more work than you the whole day. And this would make the Jewish people think, it's like, oh, it's about the quality of the work, not the quantity of the work. So there are stories that they've been understanding. But Jesus, when he gives this parable, is completely, it's completely on a different spectrum. Do you see that? There's no quality of work being talked about here. And in fact, if you were thinking quality, if all this time is like, maybe there's quality of work, maybe there's some quality of work, and you start reading into it, there is no way someone could do quality work when they get picked up at 5 p.m. That 11th hour would just demolish that understanding. When someone gets picked up at 5 p.m., there's no quality of work they could do. By the time they get up, they need to set up, get dressed, get ready to go, and the sun's down. Let's go. And then you get paid 300 bucks. That's a nice place to work. Some of you are thinking, where can I find a job like this? And I will tell you, nowhere, okay? Maybe in the kingdom of heaven, but nowhere here. And so this is something that they would have been hearing. And when Jesus told his parable, you would have been like, "Mm, this is is different. I thought I was going to hear something similar about it's about quality, not quantity. It's about work ethic. It's not about just sweat, you know, that kind of thing. But he gives something totally different. And you're like, what? What does that mean? But when you break down this parable, and if you're paying attention, you can learn at least three things. Three things. And four, if we borrow from the passage before. So there are at least three things that you can learn before if we borrow from the passage before. Number one, God is just. God is just. He does not defraud or cheat anyone. He gives people what they deserve. He is not capricious in his judgments. He does not sway or lean to one side or the other. He is just. If there are rules set, he will judge justly, which leads us to understand that if you sin and break God's law, you will be held accountable. God is just. Number two, God is gracious. In Ephesians 2, again, let me remind you, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He is not only merciful, he is rich in mercy. And those that have placed their faith in him, not their own merits, but their faith in him, 
but truly fall at the foot of the cross, these are the people that receive this mercy. So number one, God is just. Number two, God is gracious. And number three, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. This is a doctrine that many people struggle with, but as the late R.C. Sproul would say, this probably is, probably is God's favorite doctrine. Many Christians would salute the notion, or at least, you know, kind of seem to pay homage to the notion that God is sovereign, but they live out their lives differently. Many Christians live out the doctrine of the sovereignty of man, that man is sovereign. But God is sovereign means God has absolute control over every single thing, at every single place, at every single time. There isn't even an electron that is outside of his purview and control. This is what that means. He can do with the gifts of grace what he wants to. He can give it to whom he wants to, and this is his prerogative. And this, if, if this upsets you, perhaps because the doctrine of man, the sovereignty of man is being lived out, not the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But Christ, if you listen, is the one gently rebuking you. Do not begrudge my generosity. How then is this an encouragement to the disciple and the believer? If you are a disciple of Christ, you have been given this generosity. And number one, if God has given this generosity to you, if it's God who gave it to you, who can take it away? Number two, we have every reason to be thankful for whatever we get gift-wise because it is the just and gracious God who dispenses. So how does this, all this that I've said, explain the first shall be last and the last first? If we still have the ways of the, ways of the world on us, then we will still look at each other, not just in terms of money, but perhaps even spiritual gifts. Why does he think he has more spiritual gifts than others? Why does she think she is so good for serving in so many ways? And on the flip side, there's also a flip side, those who serve so hard serve this way because we believe by serving hard, we will earn this crown. It's like a competition of sorts. But in doing so, both sides of that same coin, in doing this and thinking this way, we tear down others. In Philippians 2, Paul reminds us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. By teaching the last shall be first and the first last, there is a sense of leveling the field that you cannot get away from. When you finish, you finish the same. There are crowns, there is treasure, and it's not all the same amount. We know this, it's in the Bible, but as far as this particular thing is concerned, and by the way, this should be your biggest concern, you all walk away with a denarius. 
in verse 30, it's shown to us what that is. He goes, and you will inherit eternal life. You get God. This is the greatest treasure. This is the ultimate joy. This is what Jesus wants your eyes on. When the disciples asked, who can sit on your left? Who can sit on your right? They were squabbling and focusing in on things that should not have been the focal point. When we understand this, we need to stop squabbling over why this person got that or this or why this person didn't get that or didn't get this or why you didn't get this. And if we do this, aren't we really saying this? We don't trust God's judgment. Because I am now judging that this was good and this was bad. Because my judgment is better than God's. And we must come together. And when we come together, we come together to focus on what is most pertinent. With Jesus, you get God. Eternal life is eternity spent with the absolutely just, absolutely gracious absolutely sovereign God. And I said, if you're paying attention, you get at least three, but maybe four if you borrow from the previous previous, uh, passage because they're connected. Just gracious, sovereign, but the absolutely good God. It's not just about living forever. It's not, eternal life isn't just about living forever. And I hope that you get this. If anything, get that. Eternal, eternal life is eternity spent with the absolutely just, gracious, sovereign, and good God. And it's not just about living forever because unrepentant sinners will also live forever in what will be pronounced against them called eternal death. And in death, they will not be begging and crying out for mercy, but they will be screaming, it's not fair. God is just. God is merciful. God is sovereign. And God is good. This parable gives us this understanding, and this understanding leads the disciple to trust in him and lean upon him. That's why we can let go of the things that are ephemeral because we have been given something that lasts, something that is unchanging, something that is truly eternal. And what is that? Jesus gives us himself when we didn't deserve anything close to that. This is what we've been given in Christ when we place our trust in him. And Christ gives us his perfect life. He gives us forgiveness of sins, but he gives us himself. That is the gift that is so undeserved. That is eternal life. And for the disciple, God being just, God being gracious, God being sovereign, and God being good is an incredible encouragement for us to remember through every part of our lives. Let's pray.